invite you to open your Bible and turn with me there. Um, this is uh, about Elisha, the successor to Elijah, the great Old Testament prophet. Uh, and so in, in the book of 2 Kings, we see um, Elijah is taken up into heaven. He doesn't die. The chariots of fire come and, and he ascends and his mantle is, is given to Elisha. And Elisha succeeds Elijah as a, a great prophet. And then we have a series of um, miracles in chapter 4. So the uh, Elisha and the widow's oil, and then Elisha and the Shunammite woman. Uh, Elisha uh, purifies the deadly stew. Elisha heals Naaman, who has leprosy. Uh, there's an axe head that's recovered. Uh, there's just a series of miracles which are testifying to the fact that Elisha really is uh, Elijah's successor. Elisha is God's man. That God uh, has not forsaken Israel, though Israel is under discipline because of their sin. And we'll be looking then at this story a bit in its context. Let's give our attention then to 2 Kings chapter 4. I'm going to begin reading at verse 1. Now the wife of one of the sons of the prophets cried to Elisha, Your servant, my husband, is dead, and you know that your servant feared the Lord. But the creditor has come to take my two children to be his slaves. And Elisha said to her, what shall I do for you? Tell me, what have you in the house? And she said, your servant has nothing in the house except a jar of oil. Then he said, go outside, borrow vessels from all your neighbors, empty vessels and not too few. Then go in and shut the door behind yourself and your sons and pour into all these vessels. And when one is full, set it aside. So she went from him and shut the door behind herself and her sons, and she poured. And, uh, and as she poured, they brought the vessels to her. When the vessels were full, she said to her son, bring me another vessel. And he said to her, there is not another. Then the oil stopped flowing. She came and told the man of God, and he said, go sell the oil and pay your debts, and you and your sons can live on the rest. One day Elisha went on to Shunem, where a wealthy woman lived, who urged him to eat some food. So whenever he passed that way, he would turn in there to eat food. And she said to her husband, Behold now, I know that this is a holy man of God, who is continually passing our way. Let us make a small room on the roof with walls, and put there for him a bed, a table, a chair, and a lamp, so that whenever he comes to us, he can go in there. One day he came there, and he turned into the chamber and rested there, and he said to Gehazi, his servant, call the Shunammite. When he had called her, she stood before him, and he, said, uh, to, and he said to him, say now to her, see, you've taken all this trouble for us. What is to be done for you? Would you have a word spoken on your behalf to the king or to the commander of the army? She answered, I dwell among, among my own people. And he said, what then is to be done for her? Gehazi answered, well, she has no son, and her husband is old. He said, call her. And, and when he had called her, she stood in the doorway and he said, at this season, about this time next year, you shall embrace a son. And she said, no, my Lord, O man of God, do not lie to your servant. But the woman conceived and she bore a son about that time, the following spring, as Elisha had said to her. When the child had grown, he went out one day to his father among the reapers. And he said to his father, oh, my head, my head. The father said to his servant, carry him to his mother. And when he had lifted him and brought him to his mother, the child sat on her lap till noon, and then he died. And she went up and laid him on the bed of the man of God and shut the door behind him and, and went out. Then she called to her husband and said, send me one of the servants and one of the donkeys that I may quickly go to the man of God and come back again. 
And he said, why will you go to him today? It is neither new moon nor Sabbath. She said, all is well. Then she saddled the donkey and she said to her servant, urge the animal on. Do not slacken the pace for me unless I tell you. So she set out and came to the man of God at Mount Carmel. When the man of God saw her coming, he said to Gehazi, his servant, look, there is the Shunammite. Run at once to meet her and say to her, is all well with you? Is all well with your husband? Is all well with the child? And she answered, all is well. And when she came to the mountain, to the man of God, she caught hold of his feet. And Gehazi came to push her away. But the man of God said, leave her alone, for she is in bitter distress. And the Lord has hidden it from me and has not told me. Then she said, did I ask my Lord for a son? Did I not say, do not deceive me? He said to Gehazi, tie up your garment and take my staff in your hand and go. If you meet anyone, do not greet him. And if anyone greets you, do not reply. And lay my staff on the face of the child. Then the mother of the child said, as the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So he arose and followed her. Gehazi went on ahead and laid the staff on the face of the child, but there was no sound or sign of life. Therefore he returned to meet him and told him, the child has not awakened. When Elisha came into the house, he saw the child lying dead on his bed. So he went in and shut the door behind the two of them and prayed to the Lord. Then he went up and lay on the child, putting his mouth on his mouth, his eyes on his eyes, his hands on his hands. And as he stretched himself upon him, the flesh of the child became warm. Then he got up again and walked once back and forth in the house and went up and stretched himself upon him. The child sneezed seven times and the child opened his eyes. Then he summoned Gehazi and said, call this Shunammite. So he called her and when she came to him, he said, pick up your son. She came and fell at his feet, bowing to the ground. Then she picked up her son and went out. Let's ask the Lord's blessing. Well, Father in heaven, you've given this word to be revelation and to edify, to, to teach us faith in you to show us your character, your nature, your ways. And I pray, Lord, we would have ears to hear tonight. May your spirit speak uh, through this, his word, in powerful ways to show us Jesus. We ask it in his name. Amen. We have two gripping stories uh, before us tonight. One of the th reasons I like preaching Old Testament narratives is because they're very accessible. Uh, we can identify uh, with the characters. We can, we can sense the drama as the story unfolds, and we can delight uh, in the outcomes, uh, particularly as we see them uh, this evening. However, uh, I come to the text tonight with the, the keen sense that stories like this can also be difficult for God's saints to hear, particularly for those who are in, in great pain, and especially if it's long-standing pain. Uh, stories of miraculous healing and deliverance can can be difficult because, because God's saints can be left to wonder, well, if God does that for them, why won't he do that for me? Uh, my need is equally great. Uh, my pain is, seems just as real and deep, and, and yet I've asked and, and I've begged the Lord to, to answer, and, he, and he, he doesn't hear me. He doesn't, he doesn't do this. 
Why is he willing to, to um, help the widow in her need while my, my need has gone unanswered? Why does he raise the Shunammite's son to life? And I've been begging for him to raise my son or my daughter to spiritual life. And so far, those prayers have gone unanswered. And we're maybe tempted to think that maybe it's, we're not doing it right. We're not, we're not praying enough. We're not, we don't have faith enough. We haven't been obedient enough. Uh, there are, there are uh, people who approach the Word of God and the miracles of God in, in that way, that the, that the um, miracles that we find here are, uh, contain principles to apply and, and that you too can open up the storehouse of God's blessing if you just learn how to do it right. Uh, Bruce Walke made, made millions of dollars on uh, uh, the prayer of Jabez about maybe 15 years ago where he found a little... Um, uh, obscure text in the Old Testament about Jabez who prayed and the Lord blessed him and he was convinced that this was the key that will unlock God's blessings for you. That if you pray this prayer, is what he said, if you pray this prayer of Jabez every day, you can ask the Lord for whatever you want and he will give it to you. It's not a surprise that that sells books. Uh, the problem is it's, it's, it's wickedly wrong. It's wickedly wrong. You see, um, the miracles that we find like, like this in our text this, this evening, um, if, that's, if, if that's the point, that you just need to find the, tr the, the trick, the secret, well, it, it mocks then the truth of your pain. And it turns God into, uh, into a, a, a heavenly uh, servant who just exists to meet our needs, but, he, but he's, he's going to make sure that we do it right first. I mean, it just, it just mucks up everything. It, it turns the, the gospel into something completely contrary to what it actually is. You see, the miracles that we find in the Bible are not, uh, not there uh, to encourage us that we too can experience these divine, miraculous interventions if we just learn how to do it right, but they are signs pointing to realities outside of our own personal experience, but not separate from. You see, the original audience would immediately understand when they hear these stories that there's more going on here than just Elisha being kind to two people. They would remember that these two stories are almost identical to two stories we find in the life of Elijah. 1 Kings 17, you can look it up. The, uh, there's, the similarity simply cannot be missed. There's a, there's a lesson being taught here. You see, what's going on in the, in the historical context is Israel is in decline, spiritual, religious, moral, social decline. Um, it is already a, a divided nation. Uh, this is a, a decline that they're not going to ultimately escape from. This is heading towards Israel's uh, ultimate demise. But, but in this time, they, they still have the, 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 the temple, they, they have the services, they, they're still functioning as a nation, but they're a nation under discipline because of their idolatry. And their kings specifically, but also some of their priests, are leading them in this idolatry. It's an age of apostasy. And the question is, will God abandon us? In this time of discipline, in this time of famine, has God just cast us off forever. Will God in wrath remember mercy? Is he still with us? Is he still for us? And, and the kings of Israel are no answer to that question. They are um, headlong into idolatry and, and, and with paganism. 
and so the question is real, and God's people are suffering. And here in these stories, we have an answer. In these very ordinary people, unnamed people, we're not told their names, leading just very ordinary, unimpressive, unremarkable lives, we find that God is at work. That this is where the action is. Kings might stumble, but God is still present, still at work in the lives of ordinary, unnamed saints. Though Israel, the nation, is falling, God is still faithful. And so let's just look at these stories in order and, and see the truths of God here. The widow first were just brought to a tragic scene involving this poor woman who uh, her life is absolutely completely falling apart. It had been a good life. She had a husband who feared the Lord. He was one of the prophets that would follow uh, Elisha and, and was being trained by Elisha. So one of the few men uh, who are standing for the truth of the living God in an age of apostasy. They were poor in terms of money. But they had a rich life together as a husband and wife. God had blessed them with faithfulness. God had given them um, two boys. They had a family. They had a home. They had a calling. It was a rich life. And now it was, it was being ripped apart. Death had, had stolen away her husband. And now uh, she was about to lose her two sons to a creditor. Apparently they owed money to a creditor. And because they could not pay, the creditor was going to come and take the sons and make the sons slaves to pay off the debt. Now that was common practice in the region. That was common practice for the surrounding nations. It was not to be the practice of Israel. God had specifically commanded that this was not to take place. In Leviticus 25, verse 39, God says this, If your brother becomes poor beside you and sells himself to you, you shall not make him serve as a slave. He shall be with you as a hired worker and sojourner. He shall serve with you until the year of Jubilee. Then he shall go out from you. He and his children with him and go back to his own clan and return to the possession of his fathers. For they are my servants whom I brought out of the land of Egypt. They shall not be sold as slaves. They've been rescued from bondage. They've been brought out of slavery. Israel has a dignity and an honor that belongs to them because they are God's own people, his redeemed people. You shall not make God's people slaves. But it was an age of apostasy. And kings and creditors did not care about God's law. And this man clearly cared more about his money than about godliness. And so this woman is facing a very real situation where she's lost her husband and now is in danger of losing her sons. She, she would be left utterly desolate. A, a woman in that condition is losing everything. She has no support. She has no future. She has no hope. This is a scene of absolute devastation and judgment, utterly forsaken and abandoned by God. That's what the neighbors would say. That's what this woman would feel and believe. The question is, is that what God is like? And it's... it's it's asked here potently. Psalm 77, verse 7 through 9, the psalmist puts those questions to words. Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? 
Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? Have you ever asked those questions? There will be times in your life you'll be tempted to. When dreams die, when loved ones are taken, when life is collapsing around you, and you'll wonder, what does it mean to be favored by God? What does it mean to have the promises of God when all this is happening? Those are the fears that we can think, even if we don't dare say them out loud. Well, what does this widow do? She, she goes to the man of God, and I hope you noticed in the text that that's how Elisha is referred to over and over. She goes to the servant of God, and what does she find when she goes to the servant of God? She finds mercy unlike anything she could have experienced. She, she comes with utter bankruptcy. She doesn't have anything. So Elisha says, well, tell me, what do you got in the house? She says, I got nothing in the house. I got a little jar of oil that's useless, useless because there's nothing to cook with it. There's nothing to do with it. It's all I have. Well, Elisha gives her a clear, a clear command. <clears throat> Go outside, borrow vessels from your neighbors, borrow a lot of them, not too few, and then go in. This is going to be a, a private miracle. This isn't it, it, immediately to be public. Uh, and pour into all these vessels. And when one is full, set it aside. Now, I want you to just notice that before anything else, this is a command to believe. He is asking her, just imagine doing this. Imagine being this woman, going to your neighbors and asking them for empty vessels. Would you, could I please have whatever empty vessels that you have? I'm, I'm gathering these empty vessels as though you have something to put into them. And all the neighbors know exactly the truth. She doesn't have anything. It's just, there's an audaciousness here. How do you summon the faith to go and say, I need, I need to borrow your empty vessels? Well, why? Well, the, the man of God told me just to gather these vessels. It looks foolish. It seems desperate. But she does this in faith. She, she gathers the, 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 the vessels. You see, she doesn't have any other hope. This is Peter, Lord, where else shall we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. As, as people who come to God, we, we have to at some point in our life come with that sort of desperation. There, there is no other answer. This is my only chance. It's my only hope. It's Jesus or nothing. And that's how she comes to the man of God, and, and that's how she responds then, in faith to what he tells her to do. And they, they, they put the vessels in the house, and they start pouring, and she says, son, bring me another one, bring me another one. Finally, he says, there aren't any more, they're all full. So she goes to the man of God, and she says, they're all full. He says, go sell the oil, pay off your debt, and live off the rest. God has fully provided for her need, both immediate and future. Now again, this is not just a a, a nice, divine gesture for a poor, desperate widow. This is a sign for all Israel that the God of heaven is able, you see, to provide, and he's able to provide not just uh, resources to live on. These boys have been bought out of bondage by that oil. They were, they were headed for slavery, they belonged, in a sense, to the creditor. And this oil has rescued them, like Israel brought out of Egypt from the bondage of this debt. And you see, the message goes out to all Israel. Yes, you've sinned against your Lord. You owe a debt you cannot repay. But, but God is able to pay. 
God is able to provide. There's famine in the land because there's disobedience and idolatry and paganism in the land. But if you repent and turn and go to the man of God, if you go to the Lord, God is able to cover the debt and set you free. You just need to believe the word of the prophet. You need to obey the word of the prophet. God has not abandoned them. He's not forsaken them. He's calling them to repentance and faith. There's still a man of God in the land. God himself is still near. And then we have the story of the Shunammite woman, another dramatic story, maybe even more just gripping. Here we have a a godly woman. Uh, She's wealthy, but impoverished in a way that would matter the most to Israelite women. She has no child. Isaiah, uh, Elisha finds this out uh, when, he, when he tries to find a way to repay her for her kindness. She and her husband have put up a room that uh, Elisha and his servant Gehazi can stay when they're traveling through. <coughs> it's very gracious. And so he asks, is there something, would you like me to say something on your behalf to the king? Elisha has um, conversations routinely, as you'll find through the book of 2 Kings, with the kings. She has access to them. And she says, I live among my own people. She's not looking to kings for help. So Elisha says to Gehazi, what can we do? And Gehazi says, well, she doesn't have a son. Well, notice the woman hadn't asked for a son. When when Elisha says, what can I do? She never brings up a child. In fact, when Elisha promises her a son, she rebukes him. No, my Lord, O man of God, do not lie to your servant. You can just, you can hear the pain behind those words, can't you? The, she has no doubt spent years praying for a son, that God would give her a child. And, and all the heartache and all the struggle of faith that those years of praying involved. But after years of no response, she's resigned herself to the will of God. She's learned to live with the loss. Live with the emptiness and the sorrow and the pain. And and every time she sees a child, to to just realize that will never be hers. And in a sense, she's made peace with it. Hope has died, and and, and it's easier that way. She has a life. She has her husband. She has her home. She's able to provide some hospitality to this man of God. What, What she does not need, the last thing she needs at that moment, is someone tempting her to once again have hope for this thing. And so there's a sternness in this woman's voice as she speaks to the man of God. There's a a painful honesty. She's, in a sense, saying to Elisha, do not play with my pain. Don't make trite promises. Don't speak words like that. Don't tempt me to hope. It hurts too much. Some of you here tonight know what that feels like. To live with unmet desires, longings for things that you've asked God for and and he hasn't given you. Maybe a longing for a deep intimacy in your marriage or for physical healing for you or a loved one or uh, prayers for a child that so far have not been answered or victory over some besetting sin. Maybe things in your life that that you're struggling with today and and it's, it's so painful to pray and and not be answered, not receive what you've asked for. And, and maybe, there, you see, there comes a time when we can accept our lot, that this is the way it's going to be. And, and it's, it's difficult when someone comes and reopens the wound and, and reawakens the hope. It's a painful, painful thing. 
But you see, friends, God doesn't bind his plans to our comfort zone. Sometimes he drags us into joy. And that's exactly what he does here. God God speaks through his servant Elisha, the man of God, and and through the power of God's word, this woman conceives and, and has a son. And just imagine the overwhelming joy she must have felt as she embraces her son exactly as Elisha had said. After all these years of of giving up hope and and now to to see that God has not forgotten her. God has has heard her prayers. God has seen her tears. And he's done the impossible and he's given her this precious little boy. How full her life would would have felt. How happy and blessed and rich. Her life had been. Every day she could look at this little boy as he's growing up and and think to herself, God is so good. He's so good. What a blessing this is. And then one day this little boy, probably somewhere between the ages of five and and eight, he's he's still a young boy, can sit on his mother's lap, and yet he, he goes out to the field and he has a pain in his head, and his father notices and, and shows some concern, but, but doesn't think it's not a big deal. He says to the servant, take him home and, and bring him to his mother. And so the servant did. And, and, and then you read these incredible, awful, t- just horrible words. The child sat on her lap until noon, and then he died. Now, just put yourself in, in, in the, the mother's shoes. He He died? I mean, just like that? How is that, how is that possible? It was, it was just a headache. That morning, he'd been bouncing around the house. This is her son. This is the, the blessedness of her life. This is the evidence of God's favor to her. And he's, he's just going to sit in her lap, and then at noon, he, he's gone. Some of you have experienced just the tragedy, the, the shock of, of the loss suddenly of a, of, of a loved one who's precious. So much of God's goodness came to you through that person. And, and then there's gone. And, and, and the, we, we just need to face the pain of that, you see. It's part of the story. It's, it's, it's not a parable. It's not a metaphor. This is life as people experience it, even today. Now notice what she does. She, she takes the child. She doesn't lay the child in his own bed. She doesn't lay the child in her bed. She lays the child in the bed of the man of God. Verse 21. And as the story unfolds, you see, it's patently clear, at least in her mind, that the burden of this loss is on his shoulders. This is his problem. This is his responsibility. And so she immediately heads out to find him. She tells her husband, I'm going to see the man of God. He's confused because it's not Sunday. It's not Sabbath. It's not a new moon. There's no festival. There's no worship. Uh, But she just sort of puts him aside, all is well. (coughs) Doesn't even apparently tell him the child has died. She makes her way as quickly as she can to Elisha. She brushes off Elisha Gehazi, the servant, in the same way. And then when she gets to the man of God, she falls at his feet and she wraps her arms around his feet. She caught hold of his feet and Gehazi came to push her away. But the man of God said, leave her alone. For she is in bitter distress and the Lord has hidden it from me. He has not told me. 
And then she says this, when she can finally find her voice. Did I ask the Lord? Did I ask my Lord for a son? Did I not say, do not deceive me? Didn't I tell you don't tempt me to hope? Didn't I, didn't I ask you just to leave it alone? I'd made peace with it. I did not ask you for a son. What right do you have to give me such a blessing and then to rip him away? How could you do this to me? There are people who know exactly the sound of those words and those questions as they face great loss and and wonder how in the world could God have done this? You see, her complaint is to God as much, to this, as, much as it is to Elisha. She, she feels deceived. She feels set up. She feels betrayed, mocked. You don't do this to people. And so she pours out her complaint in the desperate grief of her loss. And, and Elisha bears responsibility. So Elisha sends Gehazi off to go try to... to Resolve the problem, to, to try to lay the staff and raise the boy. But she is not leaving Elisha. This is, this, is, this is his problem. And she says to Elisha exactly what Elisha had said to Elijah when Elijah was, was going to leave. And Elisha said, stay here. And Elisha kept saying, um, as the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. It's exactly what Elisha had said before. She's not leaving she is, she is going to hold on to this man of God. So he, he arose and he followed her. And the text doesn't tell us why she does this. But, but it, it suggests that, you see, she's insisting that either Elisha raise the boy to life or he bear with her the devastation and dishonor of his death. This child was born by Elisha's word. He exists by Elisha's initiative. And if he is now to be lost, Elisha must bear the shame and bear the pain with her. And Elisha doesn't resist the burden. He doesn't deny the responsibility. But he goes with her to the home and and finds the boy in his bed. And so he went in and shut the door and prayed to the Lord. Remember, Elisha would know this boy. He's, he's been in the house many times. What joy this, this little guy would have brought to Elisha's own heart. Is, it's the evidence of God's power and God's goodness. And now he intercedes for him in the most personal, personal way. He, he stretches himself out over this little body. Here's this man of God. Mouth to mouth, eye to eye, hand to hand over this little body. Fully identifying with this boy. Fully engaging in this death. Battling for life. And as Elisha prays, the body begins to become warm. And Elisha gets up and he, and he walks the room. And he prays, he's praying to God. And, and then he comes and he lays again. And the boy sneezes seven times and, and he opens his eyes. This is a contest between death and life. And life has won. Life has, has come back to this little boy's body and he, and he calls the Shunammite woman. He says, pick up your son, your living son. And of course, she came and fell at his feet, wouldn't you? 
bowing to the ground, no doubt with tears of gratitude and joy streaming down her face. And she picked up her son and went out. It's a beautiful story. So what's the point? What's the moral? What's the takeaway? Again, some would say that, well, if you have enough faith, God will do great miracles for you. It's just completely the wrong way to come at this. It's a doctrine of demons. It makes God a cruel father who refuses to answer the, prayer, the desperate cries of his children unless they, unless they go about it right or cry long enough. It mocks the pain and godliness of those whose suffering is not resolved, whose, whose loss is not restored, those who bury their children, those who, who are denied their dreams, and yet glorify God by holding fast to their faith. Woe to those who dare blaspheme God and mock the sacred suffering of his people by turning stories like this into proof texts for health and wealth. It's not what it's about. It's about deep things. It's about holy things. It's about a God who is for us, even in the context of discipline. A God who's claimed us and owns us. A God who takes responsibility for our salvation. To remind of this, our God is a God of life, a God of the living. And it points us, you see, to the man of God who is yet to come. You know what the word, the name Elisha means? Elisha means God saves. It's the same meaning for Jesus. Jesus means the Lord saves or he, he will save. God saves. That's the point of both names. And everything typified, you see, in the miracles of Elisha point us to our Lord Jesus Christ. The freedom that Elisha procures for these two boys and the deliverance for, this, uh, for their mother. You see, that, that's the freedom that Jesus comes to give. A, th- a thousand times Jesus gives liberty. If the Son sets you free, you are free indeed. And if he has not set you free, you're still in bondage. But if you come to Jesus Christ, the way and the truth and the life, he sets you free from death, everlasting death. Not free to fulfill your dreams, not free to live your best life now. He sets you free forever, free to know God, free to dwell in his house forever in a new heaven and a new earth, free to be reconciled, free to be truly alive, free from judgment, free from condemnation, Free from destruction. This Jesus gives life, everlasting life. He has fought the battle with the devil and with death. Judah's lion has burst his chains and crushed the serpent's head. And Jesus even says in his gospels that those who believe in him will not know death. They will not taste death. They will not truly die. They fall asleep and go to be with their Lord. They don't die, not truly, not ultimately. And friends, Jesus accomplished this in the most incredibly intimate way by taking on our flesh. As as Elisha lays himself on the body of this little boy, identifying with him in every way, Jesus Christ even more so has taken our very flesh to himself, mouth to mouth, eye to eye, hand to hand, made like us in every single way so that he could fight in our place the death that stood opposed to us, the law that condemned us. Jesus Christ could satisfy that law. 
Jesus Christ could conquer death. And friends, Jesus Christ has tied his honor to our salvation. It's just a stunning thought. Jesus, by the eternal covenant of redemption, sealed with the Father before the world began, by by infinite love and immutable promise, has made your need his responsibility. Your plight has been tied to his honor. Your death, you see, cannot stand. Your loss cannot stand without loss to his name. Do you you see that? Because you see, Jesus dies for those whom the Father has given to him. And Jesus' glory is that not one of those you've given to me has been lost. And if one you see is lost, then Jesus in some sense has failed as Savior. Has failed in his calling. I remember Dr. Uh, Eric Alexander uh, talking to an elderly woman in his church who was about to die. And he asked her, is it well with you? Are you at peace? She said, oh yes, I'm at peace. And he asked her why. And she told him the gospel. And she said, "Uh, I just know I I cannot be lost. And he says, well, how are you so sure? And she says, well, you see, if if I were lost, it would be a terrible thing. I I would lose my soul. But it would be worse for God than it was for me. Because though I would lose my soul, my Lord would lose his honor. He would lose his glory. And he will not, he will not lose his honor. This is a, it's a stunning thought, friends. That if God has given Jesus Christ this way, to die on a cross, because this Jesus, you see, has has been given, you've been given to this Jesus. This Jesus belongs to you. And this Jesus, you see, is going to live and die and now intercede at the right hand of God for his children. He's going to pray for you, and he does, on the basis of his own merit, in the zeal of his own love, by the power of his own will, this Jesus intercedes on our behalf. That means that if if you are a Christian, your little life has been caught up in this grand cosmic drama of redemption. There's a backstory to the story of just your days and your experiences. You've been caught up into this great drama and not one soul will be lost while Jesus reigns. Not one tear will fall in vain while Jesus loves and not one word of God shall fail while Jesus rules. It won't happen. And that's why these stories matter. Because you see, it invites us to to lift our eyes and see that there's something beyond our moment and our trial and our pain. There is a grand, greater story. To know that God in Christ has reconciled you to him and that God in Christ is making all things new. God in Christ has come near. And though you are in pain tonight, the Lord knows, and you will never be forsaken, And tonight, no matter if you are living in days of fullness or days of grief and loss, the Lord has not changed. His purposes stand. His love endures. His promises will not fail. Life will soon be swallowed up, will swallow up death completely. No more death, no more crying, no more pain forever. Ours is to believe the man of God. That's real life with the living God. Amen.
Oh God in heaven, what amazing, marvelous things you've done for us in our Lord Jesus Christ. I thank you so much, Lord, that Jesus came for individuals, for people with, with names and stories and fears and sins. And he died on that cross to free us from our bondage to self and sin and death and judgment and to make us the adopted children of God and heirs of everlasting life and the bride of Christ. Father, some here tonight are in the midst of great trial, great heartache, and it's been a long road for some. And a story like this can be painful to cause us to hope again, but oh God, I I pray that we would have the faith to trust that you know what you're about and that in our trial we've not been forsaken or abandoned but that you are close to the brokenhearted. You love us more than we know and that in Jesus Christ we have absolute assurance that our deepest needs have been met and every other need, Lord, uh, will serve your will and one day there will be no need left but only fullness, only joy, Father, I pray that tonight, if there be any here tonight who do not know this Jesus this way, if they do not have faith that gives this peace, that you would grant that gift tonight. And Father, for those of us who do profess Jesus, I pray that we would lay hold of these great truths, that the story of our life can't be seen just by looking at the external things, but the story is really truly told in the backstory. the great love of God for us in Jesus Christ, and And every event we face, every trial, every tear can only be rightly read against the great love of God for us in Jesus and all that is ours in him. Lord, help us to live then in faith, confident that the work that you've begun, you will complete, that you will hold us fast. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.